everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Today, we are talking to an amazing human named Joe Fish, who may have gotten his start in the world of finance, but now he's a CEO of Wine Access and is constantly trying to solve hard problems that go way beyond the balance sheet, like predicting the weather. On today's episode, Joe explains how he and his team have worked to address all kinds of issues, from customer retention, to accessing the most exclusive supply, to yes, even forecasting the weather to optimize the supply chain. Let's get into it. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. I usually don't talk wine before like mm, like noon, but I feel like this is a special occasion and I'm really excited to hear everything that you guys are up to. Well, now I guess you get to change that because like we're talking wine at 7 a.m. in the morning. Now we like to start with champagne and that's that's the way there you go. go because like red wine before noon I get, but yeah, it doesn't uh, go with eggs. Well, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> so you're actually the second person on the show when I was looking through your background, you're the second person who has gone from finance, finance, finance to like CEO, which is super interesting to me because I also have a finance background. I did that for a while and have a special love for people like that. So with that, I would love to hear about your journey before getting to wine access. Yeah, it was a bit of a, an accidental one. So graduated, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, uh, was an accounting major of all things. And my very first job was audit. Wow. So I don't think you necessarily see like, especially like that, that like audit to CEO is even yeah. more so because normally they're keeping us hidden. Mm-hmm. Our personality can be a little bit challenged at sometimes, but hopefully we're going to like buck that trend. And, and for those 
for those auditors out there, like there are there are sunnier days ahead. So started my career at PwC in audit. And my two biggest clients at the time were Kendall Jackson and then Foster's Wine Estates, or who is now Treasury Wine Estates. So they own uh, brands like Behringer and Penfolds and Meridian. Uh, so that was kind of my first exposure into, into wine. And I just like, I fell in love with it. I was like, this is like such an amazing thing. So I spent a, about three years at, at PwC, or excuse me, in, in audit, probably wasn't the right fit for that. And then I moved into our deals practice, primarily focusing on buy side and sell side due diligence for private equity clients, but always in retail and consumer. Because I've always said, if I can't eat it or drink it, like I can't understand it. I would have done terrible in software. All during that time, you're on the road, you're, you're, you're eating well, you're drinking well, and you start to kind of get the bug of, of food and wine you know, as well with the, with the background I had for my years in audit and said, wow, I like really love this. I had always been looking for a way kind of back into wine, but I didn't necessarily want to work for a winery per se. So it was something of like, how can I have a variety of experiences that aren't necessarily tied to a single wine brand? And we're still kind of trying to figure that out. And then an opportunity at Ghirardelli Chocolate Company kind of came up. And again, it's food. I could teach chocolate. Like, I, I, I can understand that. I was like, I buy this a lot. So I think I, this is going to be a good fit. So I ended up at Ghirardelli. And then after about two or three years, the opportunity for wine access uh, came up to, to, lead their, to lead their finance group. So at first, it was like a pretty, pretty wide search. It was like, hey, you had to run a corporate finance department. Okay, easy. Plenty of us in the Bay Area. It'd also be good to know e-commerce. Again, it's San Francisco. So it's like between San Francisco and Seattle, you have like the overwhelming number of, of e-commerce companies. But then the third kind of wrinkle to it was you have to know wine. And there's probably three of us in the Bay Area. So I think it was number three on that, that sort of short list. So after they worked through the first two, they said, you know what? You should talk to Joe. Met with my predecessor at the time and walked through you know, what the company was, what they've been doing and where, where essentially kind of want to take the company. I said, oh, this is perfect. It meets my requirements for wine. It's not as if I'm working on a single winer the entire time. It's dynamic. It's it's both domestic and import. And it had all of like the all the things you'd like ever want if moving into wine and e-commerce. So that was back in 2017. 2018 rolls around and our board decides to go with the change in leadership. And the board had liked a lot of what I had done, uh, especially with the, with the finance group and as well as some of our, our corporate partnerships. So then said, "Hey Joe, why don't you take uh, why don't you take a crack at it?" And Which that's like this is history. Okay, let's just talk about that because I don't think that happens many times where they're like, "Let's go with the finance person." I feel like usually the finance people people go to when they have to budget season if there's a big decision, but there's not always what I have seen as like the best partnership where people like view that as like that's someone who could be the CEO. What were you doing with your finance team that really stood out? Like, what were the changes or decisions you were making, or how were you partnering with you know the other C level leaders? Yeah, I think one of the great things going back to my days at PwC is it was always a very client service focus, and I think whether it was at my time at Ghirardelli or at, at Wine Access at leading the finance team, it's like okay, like these are our stakeholders, and like how are we going to make them? How are we going to make them great and support them in the right way? So I think one of the advantages that finance leaders have is numbers in a sense are a universal language. Uh, now, whether or not people want to speak in them, speak in them or not, maybe not. And I think you have to end up kind of adapting the way that you speak with a marketer versus a merchandiser versus an operations person. But at the end of the day, finance a lot of times is going to give you that sort of exposure 
to each one of those groups. And I think one of the things where I've done well in my career is that I've, I've been able to talk. I've been able to talk to each of these departments or each of these leaders in a way in which they understand. And it may not be super intimidating when it comes to, when it comes to finance. And I'm just naturally curious. So I would spend an extra half out. Maybe my time management with it wasn't great uh, at the time, but I like really genuinely care. It's like, okay, great. Like, tell me how this works. Like it's, it's really hard to, I think, to be a strong finance leader without really being curious about, okay, tell me about, you know, CAC to LTV, or tell me about when you're thinking about these different operational metrics, like how does it flow through? Like, how can we model that? And I was always really curious. And I think different department leaders always appreciated that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What I've seen. So back in my Google days, when I was leading finance for maps and street view and all that, the best finance folks were the ones that like went into the product teams and like became part of their teams to then understand what numbers can we give you? Because maybe Mm -hmm. that's not your, you know, favorite thing to work on, but like, we'll do it for you while understanding your business so well that like, this will only be helpful. It's not going to like take things away from you Mm -hmm. because there's sometimes where you feel that, you know, people are like, oh, what are you going to take? You're going to take my budget. You're going to whatever versus how can you actually partner with me on this and give me things that my team does not have the time or wherewithal maybe to even like create dashboards and BI tools and whatever the team might bring. So that's awesome. Okay. Before we get into your CEO role. I want to hear, I want to make sure everyone knows like what is wine access? Yeah. So wine access in the most simplest terms and my CMO always makes fun of me for this, but we sell wine online in the most like simple form. Like you're a consumer, you want to, you want to find, you know, the best wine for you. You come to wine access. The big corporate speak will be we're this amazing online wine platform to service all of your various needs. But at the end of the day, we're, we're really connecting savvy buyers or even even people who are new new to wine with the best wines in the world. Uh, and when we think about what our purpose is, it's really to help people discover and enjoy the world's most inspiring wines. And we look at that through through all components of the business. And I would say that we're built on kind of four pillars, so to say. And that's a little bit of the how we do it. So it's it's wine curation, amazing team, master of wine, master som, foremost sake expert. Uh, he was former beverage director at, at, at Morimoto. So like people who have dedicated their entire lives to wine, I mean, they know it inside and out They're They're like the, the Steph Curry's of, kind of the, the wine world. So that's, that's one aspect of it. So we really tried to like take the guesswork out of it. Then there's, there's content. So every single offer that we put together is 500 to a thousand words. And we're really interested in explaining who are the people behind the wine? Like, why is this relevant? Why is it relevant to you? Like, what's what's the memorable story behind it? How do we find it? Third component is perfect provenance. So always ensuring the wine is in pristine condition. And then the last is just superior customer service. So have, you know, what I think are like mind-blowing NPS scores, high 70s, low 80s, and really, really hone in on that. So that's how we kind of think about what we're trying to do in the space. And then what are the pillars that we're, we're built on to deliver that? Got it. Okay. And what year was Wine Access founded? So the company was founded about 25 years ago, originally started as a web hosting platform uh, for wine publications and retail shops that didn't actually move into e-commerce until around 2005 or so. Yeah. And that was because of regulation, right? Like 2005 is when you could start shipping wine throughout different states instead of like keeping it within one state. Yeah. I think there was, I think there was a couple of things that kind of opened up. So obviously one certain Supreme Court uh, cases, I think there's also kind of the adoption of just e-commerce in, in general. So I think those two kind of coincided with it as well as 
the ability for carriers to actually ship wine in, in somewhat of a cost-effective way. So I think you had you know, a number of different kind of factors that really helped push that forward. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So you took over the CEO role. What did the first, were you any bit hesitant to move from finance into the CEO role? I think when you're asked to do it, you always just say yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't really think, you just say yes. And I knew that I was going to be the person that was probably best position to kind of do it. Not simply because of talent, but I probably was just there the longest at the, at the time, which was not very long. It was, I don't know, 18 months or two years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so definitely a veteran. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Finance in a sense was, I don't want to say easy, but it kind of was. I, I You knew what to expect. I could probably like do that job more or less in, in my sleep. It's you're coming up and you're speaking one language. In a sense, I'm speaking finance with finance people. When it comes to CEO and taking over that job, I'm now needing to speak in marketing, in wine, in ops, in customer service, in, in technology, all of which I, I have no clue. <laughs> like yeah. I have a decent idea, like a very, like a very like superficial knowledge of each one of those things. But it's like a very interesting change because you go from from probably knowing the most in your relative department to actually like knowing the least when you're talking to the rest of the team. So there's this, I think there's this kind of, whether you want to call it an internal struggle or just changing the way in which you're kind of thinking about things, the, the amount that you have to rely on the team and being CEO, I feel like is so much like so much heavier than, than any role I had had kind of before. Because in, when you're moving up the departments, like, okay, like I know how to cut checks. I know how to do AP. I know how to build a model. I like everything that my team had done previously, I had at least touched or had a good idea. Of. And now I had for CEO, I was like, I don't know how to do any of this. <laughs> and there's, there isn't really, there isn't really a, a great playbook for it. So I knew I had to do it definitely hesitant, but that didn't really matter because that's not what the business needed. Mm-hmm. So did your, I mean, I hear this often. I'm always like, what's the first 90 days look like? But for you, I'm guessing the first couple months was just talking to everyone and trying to figure out what they needed or like, what did that look like? Or was there pressure from the board of like, Joe, you need to deliver something within X amount of time? Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember the, like anytime I, I feel like anytime I do anything, I just start reading like crazy. So I think there's a book even called like the first 90 days or something like that. There is, yeah. I think a couple of people have brought that up on the show. (laughs) Like I, I mix and they all kind of like blend together and kind of sound the same at times. So like that was actually like my first playbook. And it was just like, okay, like what's the main, like what are the three most important things that we have to have done in the next 90 days and basically plotted those, plotted those out. So we had a big customer retention issue. So like that was kind of everything. Cause that's like that, that for us, we had, we had lost 30 or 40% of our customer base uh, from 2017 to 2018. So that was really kind of almost like one, two, and three. <laughs> Obviously, there are components as to why that happened. Which I'm going to ask. Which of course you, which <laughs> you will of course ask. So there are components yeah. of why that happened. And that really became like, what's the priority to basically, how do we write the ship and how do we, how do we you know, go from shedding 30, 40% of our customers and kind of bringing them back on board? Uh, and then is do we have the right team in place to be able to do that? So I think those were kind of the two questions more or less. And you can almost say, do we have the right team in place first? Because if you don't, then it actually doesn't really matter what strategy you have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go through all the components because I'm sure there are people out there right now who maybe they're 
business was a bit disrupted over the past couple of years. And they're like, I can figure this out if I just figure out how to even think about this retention issue. So when you're coming in hearing, you know, you're losing 30 to 40% of your customers and what did you do? Like, what did you see? What were the components of like, why were you losing so many customers? Yeah. So the, one of the, the bigger and more obvious one was we had huge problems with on-time delivery. Mm-hmm. So we'd always been a company that had been somewhere between, you know, kind of 85 to 90% on time. And that had dropped to somewhere between five and 15%, which is just like a terrible customer experience. What happened? <laughs> there, <laughs> That's like were, insane. 90 to 5%? Like what? Yeah, we, we had executed a 3PL migration. And I think that we didn't do we didn't do as good of a job as we should have in process mapping exactly like how our model worked. I think so that was one component of it. I think a second component was, is we had always been a daily offer business where we send a single SKU. So we send a single SKU and we fill a single SKU. We had also launched, uh, I would say that we innovated in 2017 by launching a standard e-commerce store, multiple SKUs, 300, you know, I think we had three to 400 SKUs on hand. And it was kind of a shift in our business model, but we didn't integrate those two kind of revenue streams in a way that made sense. So if you were to add what we call the daily offer to your cart, and then you tried to add an in-stock store wine, it would actually kick out your daily offer wine. Oh no. So so that customer experience was out. And that's just like one of like a bunch of different examples of like where our, our product didn't line up with the right consumer experience. So I think you had a more complicated supply chain. We executed a 3PL migration with probably not mapping without without doing the proper process mapping and integration plan. And, you know, all while we're shifting our business model, evolving our business model. So I think those two components really kind of like hurt on-time delivery. We, I think we were fortunate to bring in what I think is like one of the best COOs in the business and, and help kind of write that within three to four months. So when we talk about having the right people on the bus, he was definitely one of them. So everything that was, that was geared towards like, how do we improve the customer experience, whether it's shipping, whether it's website experience, whether it's the curation of the wine, we definitely cut a long tail of wines that we probably shouldn't have been offering. And like everything was geared towards like, does this consumer, are they going to love this wine? Are they going to get it on time? And is the, is the experience on the website going to be not confusing at least initially, and then how do we get it to be a great experience? Mm -hmm. For wondering if like consumers will love the wine, how are you deciding that, especially if you had so many, and it seems like you have so many options of places to source, you know, the best wines from, and like palettes are so different. Some people will give me wine, they'll be like, this is the best one, $400 bottle. I'm like, ew, this is not good. What did you just give me? So like, how did you go through deciding, especially if you had a website that, you know, wasn't probably giving any good, like guiding indicators on, yeah, a lot of people like this or they like that. when it was just kicking things out of carts and wasn't really, you know, working perfectly. Mm -hmm. So we're never going to get it right 100% of the time. Like it's just almost impossible. And especially when you're buying a wine, in a sense, when you're buying a wine blind without tasting it. But I think one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is have we have this absolutely amazing wine team that I mentioned before, master of wine, master of psalm. And for, for those of you that don't know what that is, it, it, it's essentially the pinnacle of the wine profession. So I think for both of them, they're two different kinds of designations. There's about 400 
of each in the world. So if you put the two together, it's less than a thousand people in the world have. Wow. Have, have What's the training look like for that? A uh, lot of drinking, a lot of studying. <laughs> <laughs> only 1% of them make it out. <laughs> and only, yeah, a very, yeah, very, I mean, it, it is, it is one of the most prestigious, you know, both yeah. of those are, are, are some of the most prestigious and most difficult tests to pass. So I think, you know, with that team, they've dedicated their lives to, to wine. They know a high quality wine from, from a low quality wine. So every, every single one of them, when, or I should say every single wine that we put through our platform has been tasted, tested by them. And the, the question they had is, would I stake my reputation on this? And does this wine punch above its weight for, for the category? And anything that comes through the platform has basically been vetted by that team. So it's like, you, you have this expert, you don't have to go to a restaurant, you, you just go to Wine Access and you have this expert team who has already kind of pre-vetted the wine for you. So no matter what, you know that it's gonna be a great wine and well-made. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna love the wine. Because for instance, we, we can have a really well-made, I'm not a huge Zinfandel fan. So it doesn't matter if it's the greatest one in the world. It's, I would probably, I'll probably take an above average you know, Northern Rhone Syrah over like the best maids in, in the world. So I think that's the second component that we've really been trying to kind of figure out and, and crack. So I think content does a great job of that, whether it's talking about the wine, where it's from, stylistically what it's like, as well as having the wine team assess the attributes of the wine. So someone may say, I love wines with huge, like with big fruit that's just busting at the seams. Well, the great part about that is that when you go on wine access, you can look at every single wine and it's profiled for fruit intensity, for oak intensity, for acidity. We're going to be adding uh, 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 aromatic intensity. And there's a number of different kind of wine attributes, tannin as well. There's a number of different wine attributes so as you start to kind of start to kind of form your thesis around wines that you like, whether it's heavy in fruit, whether it's high in acidity, we're able to we're able to showcase that too, and you're able to see like, yeah, this actually does look like a wine I would like. We've also just actually rolled out some personalization uh, platform for our consumers as well. So based on the wines that you've viewed, you've purchased, or that you've rated, we then can kind of serve up wines that we think that you would absolutely love. So I think there's two kind of different, there's, there's kind of two different approaches that we, we've taken in it. So you have the wine curation where the pure curation of saying, is this a well-made wine for this category? Does it punch above its weight? And then you have the other side from, from more of a technology and kind of data science standpoint, do the attributes of this wine or based off of your buying history or rating history or people or, or lookalikes, do we think that you'll enjoy this wine? There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. How do you think about when it comes to content, educating like 
more newbies? Because I, you know, I hear all the words sometimes when people are like, well, what kind of wine do you like? And I feel like the words that I use are, you know, it's like either smoky or oh, that's about it. I'm like, I like a kind of smoky wine. I don't like sweet, but it's like very basic, the terms I know to try and describe what I like. But when someone starts coming in with acidity and full body and aromatic and I don't know, I'm like, I actually don't know. Like, how would you go about teaching someone like me what I like? Yeah. I, so part of it is just going to be like a little bit of trial and error. I think where we do a great job with our content and I think the, the, the flavor profiles are kind of one thing. I think where people really gear in on it is there's normally a really good and fun story behind how we found this wine. Mm, that's cool. And within that, it's weaving, okay, like when, I, when I'm having this wine, I love it with, you know, with the filet or Scottish salmon, and we were eating it with, you know, whatever the sides were. And it was, it's almost saying like, how do we, how do we take you from kind of behind the computer, behind the phone and put you at the table with us eating and drinking? Because I think that's kind of the most natural way of talking about wine or at least explaining wine. And, and within that, the tasting note kind of embedded like within the story of like, this is what we get within. And do you like these aromas or these these sort of fruit flavors, or do you like how it feels on your mouth where it feels really heavy or it dances across your tongue? You know, I think our content and the way that we approach that does a really good job of kind of explaining why you may like it without being like super technical. Because mm -hmm. again, even before I came in the industry, like if you're asking me, Joe, how much a city is, you know, what's the level of a city in this wine? It's like, I have no clue. <laughs> like, I don't know. But it was really I, I do get very captivated by the stories that we tell because when it's when it's told in a story form of how we came about it, what we were eating with the winemaker, what we were drinking, it feels like I can I can absorb that much better. And I think that's what we aim to do with with our with our content. Now, if you just want to get super technical with it, you could just say, look, I'm going to buy six. I'm going to get a case of wine. I'm going to rate them. <laughs> and, and then from there, Wine Access can pretty much tell me what should I get after that? One of the nice things I think we've always had, and especially one of the reasons where I think our customer service rates so highly is if you don't like a bottle, we credit it back. So it's also like a riskless mm -hmm. way of approaching wine. That's good. So if, if you had six out of six and you hated all of them, which it's never happened before, at least that I know of, then you theoretically like get credited back and you try again. Uh, but mo most times I would say we have a pretty high hit rate. People like them. Yeah. What is one of the most memorable stories of finding a wine? And it can be while you have been there or, you know, just something you've heard from like years ago. But like, what's one of the craziest stories of how, you know, you all found top wine? Yeah, there's there's a wine that we direct import ourselves called Brignon. So Brignon is a, it's a, it's a champagne. They do a bunch of different wines, anywhere from non-vintage Brut to vintage champagnes. We ended up going there, I want to say in February, probably because it was cheap. Uh, there's snow on the ground. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. I remember going there, it was like, it was like freezing. And we were doing visits of some of our existing, some of the existing wines we work with, like icons like Runar or Billicart. But I remember we were at, uh, we were at Runar and we just had finished tasting and we ended up getting a driver for, for, to take us from point A to, to, to point B. He ends up parking the car and we finish with our tasting and we're like on a high. We're like, this is amazing. Like we went through the caves of Runar and we did this kind of once of a once in a lifetime experience. And we get to the car and we hop in and we're like, all right, let's go to the, let's go to the next place. And hits the gas, like turns on the car, hits the gas, and the wheels are just spinning. Like he's stuck. 
And I'm like, oh, you have to be kidding me. So I'm there. So it's myself and it's our, our, our head of wine who is in heels. We have to get out of the car and we just start like pushing the car while like he's hitting the gas to go in and like, it's still stuck. And then I think I, I run to a shed and I get a shovel and I start like shoveling out the, the ice from, from behind the wheel and it finally gets loose. And like, I'm sweating because I sweat standing. Thank God I live in San Francisco because like, otherwise if I was in New York or something or, or if I was in Austin, I would be drenched all the time. So I'm like sweating, just getting done with like this fancy champagne tasting about to head to our next one. And we like get back in the car. I was like, man, that was, that was rough. I was like, you know, you owe us one. I need a, a champagne house that has no representation in the U S that's, you know, the best in the world and our driver. And I couldn't have been more perfect because his name is icy, A I S S I. So yes, icy wow. got us caught, got us stuck in the ice. Uh, it's like, Oh, I have the perfect place for you. So I'll take you after the, the next appointment. So afterwards we end up showing to this house is really tiny called called Brignon. It's a, a husband and wife that that run in. I think they I think they do maybe three thousand or four thousand bottles a year. So super, super small. And we show up there and like we knock on the door and they let us in and we go through the tasting and we're like, oh my God, we like absolutely love it. And our and our head of wine says, can you take the dosage level? So that's basically like the amount of sugar that's kind of added to the bottle. And they said, sure, like great, but like if you're going to buy this, we need a commitment. It's like, how many bottles do you want? We're like, we'll take uh, 3,000. They're like, we only make four. We're like, we'll take 3,000. <laughs> like, we're just going to need a check up front. And then sounds good. We shook their hands and we left. And I swear, I thought like, I think that they thought that like the French Ashton Kutcher was going to come out and say that they were punked by these Americans who came in, told you to make your wine a little bit different and that they'll take 75% of your production. That was about three years ago. So then like, we we later hop on the phone. They're like, well, good news. Wires cleared. Let, let's make this happen. And since then, like we've built like an absolute phenomenal relationship. They oh, wow. planted out, I think, another like another two or three acres for us, like just for us. Wow. And we have become like such a big, a big component of their their uh of obviously what they make and our and our customers absolutely love it. So Ooh, yeah, okay. getting getting caught in the snow or caught in the ice with a with a driver named Icy can change the trajectory of, of the types of wines that you offer. I love that. Just trust the drivers. And it's a staple. Yeah. Trust the drivers. They know. Oh man. Okay. I need to try this now. You've really see the stories. The stories work. I mean, I love that. Have you seen the wine bottles that have like Snoop Dogg on it? And they have like, I think it's uh, like AR where you hold up your phone and you can see the whole story of it. Yeah. Have you seen those? I have. Yeah. What do you think? Cause I'm like, how fun would that be to have them similar to those wine bottles? pop off the label, be playing out the whole story of the wine of, you know, this couple and what they're doing and all that. And then, you know, people can watch that while they sip. Yeah. So I, we haven't offered any that have AR associated with it. I think it's, I think it's a really cool concept. You know, we were, we were talking earlier about how wine is kind of 15 years behind in terms of of digital. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll eventually start to see more of that. I'm always a fan of like anything that kind of pushes and helps make the consumer experience better. Mm-hmm. We do have some wines that we do ourselves as opposed to kind of third-party wines that that we purchase. So after this, I'll be on the on the phone with our CMO 
uh, telling him that we gotta we, we gotta figure out AR on our next. I mean, I own brand. I'm not pushing. I'm just saying it's memorable. And there's so many times people are like, "Hey, hey, get out your phone. Look at this." And like the wine, eh, I don't remember the wine being that good, but the story definitely made it. And I know that I would buy that wine bottle just to bring it somewhere for that experience, even though the wine wasn't that great. So I'm not pushing the concept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you do bring up a good point. Because I think one of the things that I think we do really well is with each wine. You'll get a print out on thick cardstock and it will have the flavor profiles that we talked before. It will have a truncated version of the story. It has a picture of the bottle. It will say, it will give you a drinking window of when you should drink it and also when it probably, when you shouldn't. And I think that those sort of things really enhance the experience because there's been plenty of times where you'll go and you'll have a wine. You'll be like, God, what was that again? Like, where did I have it? So anything that I think, you know, uses all the senses whether it's whether you're reading it, whether you're hearing it, whether you know, whether whether you're feeling it, that is going to enhance the the consumer experience. And I think that, you know, the example that you give with AR is just one more touch point that is going to to enrich in the the consumer experience. So I think it makes I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Just make sure you get the app right. Because the worst is when you're like, Joe, Joe, look at this. It's so funny. It's so awesome. And then it doesn't work. You're like, let me try one more time. It doesn't work. So <laughs> You at least have to make sure it works, especially if people are a bit tipsy when they're trying to make this thing work. Yep, yep. <laughs> One advice. So I want to shift over to the world of supply chain and specifically weather. I read a bit about what you guys are doing when it comes to forecasting weather and how that impacts your supply chain. And I was hoping you can kind of tell us a bit about what you're doing there. Yeah. So when we think about the pillars of wine access, we talked through curation, we talked through content. I'll jump to the fourth with you know, superior customer service. Perfect provenance falls within that, falls exactly with what you're talking about. So we always want to make sure that when we're shipping the wine or when you're going to taste the wine as a consumer, it tastes to as close as it can as when we did when we were in wine caves at the chateau, at the tasting room, you you name it. And especially if you're in you know hotter places throughout the US, it's really important that that we don't fry the wine <laughs> because you do that, then you're drinking vinegar. So one of the things that I've been really proud of um, that has been led by our tech team, by our, by our COO, is determining when is it sh- safe to ship wine. And one of the ways that we do that working with, with AWS is we'll look at the route that a wine will end up taking to its final destination. And we will assess, you know, as it travels, uh, what are the zip codes it's moving through? What do we think the kind of projected weather uh, is going to be? What are the temperatures? And if it is moving through an area in which we think that the wine will be compromised, we won't ship it. Or <laughs> we will emphatically tell the consumer, this wine is going to get fried if you do it. There are some things you can do to combat that. We use ice packs when shipping, especially in the summer when it when it's warm. And that will also you know, dictate how long it can be in some of those more warmer zones. If it's, it's moving through 100 degree weather, even with with an ice pack, it's probably gonna it's probably gonna fry it if it's you know x number of days in, in in transit. So that's been a piece that I've been really proud of that that this team has been able to launch, and I think something that not a lot of other companies do or really invest behind. Yeah, that's amazing. So do you think your weather forecasting is better than the Weather Channel? And if so, should you license that data? Do we have a new business opportunity here? I don't know if we're that good. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we all use kind of the the probably the same base data anyway, but I'll say that we are. Okay. Um, how do you message it to your consumers when like a lot of times when people 
at least me, when I buy wine, I'm like, I want it pretty soon or I have this thing coming up that I'm not preparing for. You know, it's like in three days, so I'm not thinking that far ahead. How do you tell someone like, hey, you should probably wait. I don't know, here in Texas, you'd probably tell me to wait until like, honestly, October. I mean, it's going to be 100 until then I'm thinking. Yeah, and I think it depends on obviously like where you're at. So at, at checkout, we essentially will have a couple of options where we'll have basically say ship when safe or ship it anyway. And we'll say, okay, here, here's our theory behind why we like the way to, you know, to, to ship when safe. Uh, we also have a great customer service team. So I think one of the things that I've always been really proud of is for the most part, we have a Napa-based customer service team. We have some people in, in different time zones as well to kind of help out with the East Coast so that you know, the entire team doesn't have to be up at 6 a.m. Uh, answering, answering phones. I think we've done a good job in, in, in either mes- messaging at checkout, messaging at, at shipping confirmation. And then as always, you can always call and happy to kind of walk through the different options. That being said, there still is times where people just didn't pay attention to checkout, didn't pay attention to shipping confirmation and don't want to call in. But I think we've, we, we give enough touch points, you know, all ranges of, of, of where the customer could, could see how the wine is going to be shipped to, to communicate that. Yeah, love it. So when thinking about the next year, I would say, what's maybe the hairiest problem you all are working on right now that you think will maybe, you know, result in big gains or benefits or it's something that you're not even sure if it'll work out at all? It's a big bet. What are you guys working on? So I think a a big piece for us is how do we get pick a target? 50% of the wines that we offer are exclusive or kind of semi-exclusive. And I think that's going to be that's going to be done a number of different ways. So it could be working directly with the wineries overseas versus working through importers. We love our we love our importers. They have great books of business, but I think we also want to figure out like how can we make wine access a shopping destination to get things that you can't get anywhere else. Amazon's obviously not in the space. They were for a little bit or for a while and then then post the Whole Foods acquisition had to basically divest their marketplace. But I think any like somewhat competent e-commerce leader has to think, okay, like how can you work towards kind of Amazon proofing yourself? And for us, I think that is exclusive supply. How do we build up that portion of our business, both from an import perspective, but I also think from a domestic perspective as well. And that would be striking up partnerships with different vineyards or different winemakers. And that's really where I think, especially this year, we've started to see a shift. And how do we control kind of more of our, more of our supply chain? At least to us, it's, it's not news. The, the Napa 2020 vintage, big fires and wiped out a lot of supply. There's been a lot of you know, frost and other weather events that have happened in, in Europe uh, that have been kind of lowering yields, which just means in certain parts of the world, there's less to go around. So the more that you have that direct relationship with the Chateau over, overseas, uh, and it's coming directly to you as opposed to kind of into an importer and then spread to kind of the different, the different retail players it just gives us more kind of control over supply chain. So that's that's been a really big one, a really big one for us. Mm, that's cool. That's interesting. Is it ever hard to get them to be exclusive with you? Because I'm imagining if I'm, you know, me and my husband are making wine and we're serving, you know, our local town and everything. And then all of a sudden we're going to change it over to you for maybe a year or two at a time to then have to go back again to like how I was doing it. How does that look like to maybe guide them through what it looks like to be exclusive? And then what if they're not anymore? Like, uh, no, good. And I think it's a good clarifying question. I think when we talk about exclusivity, we really think about it in the U.S. market. Got it. Obviously, like, we don't have, dist- or I should say, not obvious, we don't have distribution overseas. So we're really, okay. we're U.S., it's, it's, it's 45 states plus D.C. 
So that's really what we're trying to do. And it's for people who are trying to break in kind of to the, in, into the US market. And I think one of the things that, that we allow for, for that is we have, we're direct to consumer. So they're able to know exactly like where their product's going into, as opposed to maybe working through importer and it could go to distributor and who knows how it's being kind of showcased around the US. So we're really focused on saying, we want to tell your story and then we want to share it with our, our massive customer base across across the US. So it ends up being, I think, a pretty easy sell for them because at this point, if you don't have distribution in the US, most, a lot of those wineries do do want that. And they want to, sh- they want to share their story like with the world. Like, why wouldn't you make this amazing wine? Why wouldn't you want to share it, share it with everyone? And the U S is obviously a really important market for, for winemakers and wineries overseas. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. One final thing, since you took over as CEO, how much has the company grown? Like what are some metrics if you were to throw around and kind of like, you know, tat what's going on? Like what, what numbers do you look at? Yeah. I mean, I think our, if we look at our, our consumer base, in Rev, we've, I think, a little more than doubled the size of the company wow. um, from a consumer and Rev standpoint. No big deal. That's amazing, Joe. Congratulations on all the success. It was a really fun interview. I will have to try many of the wines now, especially the most exclusive ones. So thank you for coming on here, sharing your story. And until next time, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to at Wine Access? You don't need to worry about me, but the company is what's most important. So it's it pretty easy, wineaccess.com. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. All right, thanks. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.